0: Welcome to Tasty Grinds, the podcast where we talk to people with fascinating careers in food and dig into how they pull it off. I'm your host, Dabney Gough. Friends, today's conversation is with Martha Cheng, the former food editor for Honolulu Magazine and now a freelance writer for local and national publications. She has been a line cook, a food truck owner, Peace Corps volunteer, and Google techie. In this episode, she talks about where she gets her story ideas, the most difficult part of being a food writer. Here's a hint: it's the writing, and her reasons for leaving the quote-unquote dream job of restaurant critic. Martha believes every story can be told through food, and she's one of my favorite people to take on that task. As always, be sure to check the show notes at tastygrinds.com for links to some of the places and stories we talk about today. Martha Chang, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So to start off, tell me what you had for breakfast today.
1: Uh, (laughs) Is it bad that I haven't had breakfast yet?
0: (laughs) Not one of those people, are you, who just doesn't have breakfast?
1: Um, I usually do, but then I just got busy, so um, I can tell you, yesterday, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I just had some oatmeal with the raisins and toasted walnuts and bananas, and then I had a green smoothie, and I threw in almond milk kale, dates, and banana. Well balanced. I approve. (laughs) I was going to make the same thing for breakfast day, but I guess it's not really breakfast anymore. Oh, God.
0: (laughs) Uh, And where did your interest in food come from?
1: Well, my parents always wonder that too, and I am just, I blame it on them, (laughs) like you raised me to really love food. I mean, um, I'm the daughter of two immigrants from Taiwan. And in Taiwan, they are obsessed about food, and you know it's the way it's how they show hospitality is just feeding each other and So, when I was little, eating out and cooking was always a big deal, like after my mom used to always cook these um very super homey Chinese dishes that she learned from my grandma who used to run a restaurant in San Francisco. And, um, but when she broke her arm skiing, my dad took over and he started cooking all this crazy stuff from like all the French cookbooks. And so we had like lots of duck breast. And when we went out for special occasions, it was to places like Gary Dako And so, yeah. And then once I remember... We took a friend on a college tour trip on the East Coast. And after two days, she was just so frustrated. She's like, it takes you guys two hours to find a place to eat because you have to check out all the options. You have to make sure you like the menu. You have to make sure there's like a certain number of people inside. And so, (laughs) yeah, so I think it kind of all
0: just started my parents. And tell me a little bit more about your grandmother, because I think that's really interesting that she, she was in the business. And she was actually a pretty um, influential person.
1: Um, well, she cooked at a restaurant that, at the time, the New Yorker called um, the best Chinese restaurant in the world, which wow. I find hilarious because, you know, clear, he, clearly he had never actually been to China.
0: <laughs> this was in, where was the restaurant?
1: Um, it was in San Francisco, and it was. it's now called Henry's Hunan, uh-huh. I think. And there's a bunch of locations. But back then... Um, my grandma was a friend of the owner and so she was one of the two cooks there. Um, and it was Hunan cuisine, which tends to be more spicy and kind of smoky and yeah. And then she left to open her own restaurant and I remember sleeping in the back like after school, but I didn't, I never got a chance to learn cooking from her, Hmm. which I'm sad about now. Um, so now I try to seek out a lot of Hunan cuisine to kind of remember
0: it. Yeah, but I think it's funny that they let you sleep in the back after school rather than putting you to work. You got off <laughs> easy.
1: <laughs> I know. I was I was definitely a spoiled kid. Like <laughs> as it well, yeah. Like my parents just wanted me to study all the time, so probably I was supposed to be studying.
0: <laughs> so, right, right, right. But I got
1: to remember sleeping.
0: Yeah. And um, how
1: did you make your way into the world of
0: food? As a as a job,
1: as a profession, yeah. Um, I think it it started when I was in the Peace Corps. Um, before then, I'd always I'd always kind of been eating out. I used to live in San Francisco, and there's tons of great places to eat out, and I loved doing that. But when I got to the Peace Corps, obviously there wasn't anywhere to eat out, <laughs> and so I had to learn how to cook. And then I also just found it to be one of the few ways I really connected with. My host family, I I didn't have a lot to talk to them about until we started talking about food, and then all of a sudden it just just opened up all this conversation about you know family recipes, about what do I do with this, about um, just the different food culture. This is in uh, Saint Vincent in the West Indies, and I think that's where I started to really really think more about food like think about it more consciously other than just like before I guess maybe it was more entertainment and sustenance and in the peace court just began thinking about it more um when I came back I thought about applying to culinary school um but then I kind of chickened out and it was expensive so I went tell me about it (laughs) (laughs) you made the right decision did actually like later a second time when I looked at culinary school again I did enroll but then when it came time to actually like so they let you attend for like a week before you actually have to cough up the money and Uh then when they asked for it I was like uh never mind (laughs) oh yeah so I went back into tech which is where I started after college and I worked at Google until until my then husband was like He was like, you clearly love cooking and food more than you love the work here. So just try. And we did. We just just applied to a bunch of places. And the first place to take me I went into is a bake shop. So yeah, that's where it all started. (laughs) And then
0: fast forward, how Mm -hmm. did you get the job of food editor for Honolulu Magazine, which was your most recent gig?
1: God, <laughs> a lot of a lot of luck and knowing the right people. And I I still look back and think it's just totally amazing and crazy. Um when I moved to Hawaii, my first job was as a line cook at the pineapple room. And my chef's sister was starting a food website, so she asked me to write some stuff for it. And that's kind of where it started. And then from that, I got to know Lori Carlson through Slow Food Oahu. And she was the publisher of The Weekly. So I started freelancing for The Weekly. I became their food editor. And and then when the job opened up at Honolulu Magazine, I applied for it and got it.
0: (laughs) Tell me a little bit about the nitty gritty of the job. What were your basic responsibilities? What kind of hours did you have? What kind of deadlines and cycles did you have to operate under?
1: Well, I had the daily blog, so I always had a daily deadline. And then the monthly magazine schedule, I felt like, I felt like I never stopped working, but in a really good way because it didn't feel like work. It just felt like what I would have done anyways, you know, explore Mm -hmm. restaurants, talk to chefs and just basically getting to know the city through food, um, you know, I'm not from Honolulu. And at that time, I guess at that time I'd been here for six years. So I, I did know it, but I was getting really intimate with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, generally most of my days, if I wasn't writing a story, then I was just eating <laughs> or talking to someone in the food industry. Yeah, there really weren't set hours.
0: And how did you decide what to write about, whether it was a restaurant or or a sort
1: of broader feature story, what, what did you look for? Basically just anything that interested me. I was, I was really lucky that I was given a lot of freedom to decide what I wanted to write about. So any restaurant that I loved, I would write about. I love finding little hidden places um, or if the chef was doing something interesting. And the larger feature stories just usually tended to be what, about what I was curious about. Can you give me an example of one of those? Um, I started this kind of um, this yearly thing. It was called like the, the everything guide or the ultimate guide to something. And so the first one we did was the Japanese food guide, because I had noticed that the Jap- There's tons of Japanese restaurants in Honolulu, and they're really, really good. Like, I feel like one of Honolulu's best cuisines is Japanese food. And I guess I just wanted to explore all the different Japanese cuisine here. So we kind of just, you know, <laughs> found them all in the city for everything from like noodles to um, so, all the kinds of noodles like soba, ramen, udon. And then, um, What's really unique to Honolulu, I think, too, is that we have a lot of Okinawan food, mm-hmm. which is pretty uncommon outside of here. Um, so that was super fun. I remember that story. Coming
0: from somewhere else, it was a, a good foundation on all of the, I don't know, it was like Japanese Food 101 with the, and also with the Hawaii overlay on it. I really yeah. Um, what parts of the job came very easily to you. And which parts did you really have to work at?
1: The exploring and asking questions came pretty easily. (laughs) Um, I never ran out of things to write about. You know, I think people would ask me all the time in the beginning, they're like, you have to write a daily blog and then a monthly column. Uh, There's not that much stuff going on in Honolulu. It's not a big city like New York or San Francisco. Aren't you going to write run out of things? And I was like, no way. You know, the the day I run out of things to write about is the day that I shouldn't have this job anymore because there's just so much, there's so many stories out there. Um, So finding them and like, and exploring them was pretty natural for me. But um, this is embarrassing to admit as a writer, but the writing part (laughs) was the hardest part. (laughs) I was like, oh, wait, now I actually have to do something with all this information. (laughs) Well,
0: and as we've discussed, the hardest part I have is coming up with ideas. So I still think we should form a dynamic duo. You're the idea person and I'm the writing person.
1: Oh, my God. No one will ever know. Well, I I do seriously think about that. So (laughs) I could be your (laughs) ghostwriter. I can't Oh wait, I was like, wait, no, wait. I'll be your idea writer. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. No, your ghost idea. What? <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> well, tell me a little
0: bit more about that. I mean, what? Because I, I think a lot of people who are writers can relate to the struggle of writing, but I think everybody has a slightly different frustration or friction. So. <laughs>
1: yeah, I know. There's so many ways to screw up writing, right? <laughs> There's so many obstacles. Um, the hardest, I mean, all of the writing was pretty hard, but the hardest would be the food reviews. Um, those were honestly my least favorite part of the job. And it's funny because usually when you say food writer, people usually think food critic, like you go out and write about, you taste the food and you write about what you thought about it. Um, and for me, that was both the least interesting and hardest part because one, food is just so personal, you know, and I, I hated to, you know, put my experience out there because I don't think other people would have the same experience, even if everything were exactly the same for them Mm -hmm. that day. Um. It just wouldn't be the same. A very relativist way to look at it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) See, this is why I'm a terrible food critic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then the other problem was because I came from the restaurant industry. Like I started in the food industry as a cook. I had this loyalty to restaurants. And, you know, even if I didn't like it, I didn't want to say that I didn't like it. I didn't want to because I know how much work goes into it and I know how hard it is. And I know for them, it's also an art form. Um, it's an expression of themselves. And I didn't want to be the one to criticize them. Right, And again, because it's so personal. Right. Yeah.
0: And so in those situations, did you just write around those personal criticisms or did you just not write about those places at all?
1: Um if I wrote about a place that I had to find there there was something there I thought worth going for, so i never- wrote, I would never write about a place that I thought had no nothing good there mm-hmm. um and and sometimes it would be a mix there'd be some things that I didn't like and um sometimes just depending I don't know that I had a a formula for it, but sometimes I would add those in especially if it was something that I thought was. Um important to get right, maybe, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> then maybe I'd be, and then I'd throw it in, but generally, I mean, I've gotten this criticism a lot that my reviews tend to be very positive, so usually I would kind of avoid it or just kind of you know it's like a what do they call it? a positive sandwich where it's like positive in the beginning, negative in the middle and positive at the end. <laughs> mm, yeah. yeah do you regret anything that you wrote? I don't know about regret. There's an article I think about a lot where it just had unintended consequences, I guess. (laughs) Um, I wrote about a chef who had just moved here from New York and he had a lot of great ideas, um, ideas that I agreed with. But it was very, you know, as sometimes people who come here from, somewhere else you know very upfront about it like said in ways that people who have been here for a while or grew up here don't say it <laughs> like it's very blunt <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> That's the interaction style you're talking about
1: yeah so he was very blunt and I used his quotes without kind of softening them at all and I think it really was taken poorly by by readers and so I think they ended up turning on him personally. Um, and I thought his food was really good. I believed in his ideas. And there was no reason for people to um, kind of just go after him personally like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's also not what I intended. People and, – and maybe uh, that was – I guess I maybe mean, that's the thing that scares me about writing too, right? And sometimes that's why I have such a writer's block is – how people can misconstrue your intentions because people thought I wrote it to because I was out for out to get him. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. But I mean, you were quoting him.
1: Yeah, he said but those you words. know, yeah, he did. And but people thought, you know, right? You can always take a quote out of context, which I didn't think I was doing. But you can take a quote out of context, and so you can spin a story any way you want, right? And the journalists, writers, always have a bias. So people thought my bias was that I disliked him. And so I wrote this article because I did not agree with him when it was the total opposite. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really
0: interesting situation because my interpretation is that that speaks more about the audience than it does you as a writer, because you're writing for an audience that in Hawaii um, values niceness and avoiding conflict over being forthright. Or brutally honest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes.
0: So it's kind of, a, that's an interesting scenario where maybe you wouldn't have gotten that same response if you were writing the same story for an audience somewhere else. You know what uh, I mean?
1: Yeah. yeah, definitely. That is true. Yeah. I think, I think that's what surprised him too, right? Because he'd been from New York. I don't know if he'd really been in the media that much in New York, but yeah, saying all that stuff in New York, like people would probably love it or they'd be like, there'd be some healthy debate but <laughs> right. yeah right they eat yeah. it up <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean eater.com i feel like just thrives off of that kind of those kind of stories right
0: i have a very practical question mm-hmm. people who are listening to the podcast won't necessarily have seen you but you're a very slender person i <laughs> have been ever since i've known you which was before you had this job mm-hmm. so how did you keep from getting fat eating out I mean you ate out as many as how four times a day
1: yeah some days and then uh I picked up this awful habit of like like needing to order everything off of the menu (laughs) like even when I wasn't kind of um critiquing a restaurant or anything um just but I've stopped that but yeah (laughs) um I do eat a lot I mean people assume that I don't eat a lot but I do um, I don't know. Just lucky, lucky jeans. Honestly, I don't really do. I mean, I surf a lot, but I think even without the surfing, I just got lucky. I hate you. <laughs> don't worry, am. my um, my arteries are all <laughs> my arteries are fat and clogged. <laughs> fat on the inside. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, fat on the inside. <laughs> Did
0: you ever have restaurants really go over the top to try to woo you?
1: <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, well, I mean, there's always the offer of free meals and um, I guess sometimes even like free hotel stays if I, if it's on a neighbor island, um, I guess there's that, which is kind of common in the food rider world. Um, sometimes it's hard to tell sounds sort of like cynical-ish, but it was hard to tell, too, because so I came from the food industry, so I knew a lot of the chefs, and so they became my friends. Then when I became a food writer, were they still my friends because they were my friends or were they my friends because I was a food writer? Mm. (laughs) So um, So you start questioning people's motivations. Sometimes, yeah. Maybe not so much the ones I met before I was a food writer, but the ones that became friends after that. It was always hard to know and this being a
0: small island community anonymity was not necessarily <laughs> part of it but do you think that's i mean you a lot of people knew who you were before you got the job
1: right yeah do you think that mattered yeah i mean so sometimes definitely the treatment was better because they knew me so maybe the service would be better or i'd get some extra plate or something or you could tell that that the dish was maybe just a little bit more precise than it would have been because sometimes they wouldn't notice me. Even I could tell the difference um, between when they did notice and they didn't. But on the other hand, there's only so much you can do, right? Like, So I never made a reservation under my own name. So if they saw me, it was they only had maybe, what, 10, 20 minutes to put together whatever they had. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's only so much you can cover up or hide or fix, or sometimes it didn't matter. Sometimes you could still tell that things weren't quite right. Many
0: people would look at the job that you had at the magazine and um, think that you were just the luckiest person <laughs> on earth. Um, <laughs> and I think that that is the goal for a lot of people who are aspiring food writers who have a blog or yeah, want to express themselves through words about food. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for somebody who has their eye on that prize? Mm,
1: just you really have to love food. Um, yeah, you know, when I was in the thick of that job, it was, you know, and, and food is people's lives already, so it's not that hard, but you really have to um, just, <laughs> I don't know, go go even deeper into it. Um, because everyone honest yeah everyone's obsessed with food these days everyone's a food critic these days thanks to Yelp so you have to really explore go deeper I guess go deeper than just tasting it um, and go deeper than the trends but really just figure out why something why certain foods you really connect with or why it exists or why is this on your plate Um, that's what I think and I also think since everyone these days is kind of a food writer through blogs or et cetera, that you have to come in with a unique angle. So I think for me, it really helped that I'd been in the industry first. That was when they were hiring for the job at the magazine. I didn't quite have all the, I didn't have the years of writing experience that they had asked for. But they really like that I came from the industry. And I think also, this is specific to Hawaii, that um, I came from the industry, and so then I knew a lot of the people. And the magazine liked that sort of, like those connections mm-hmm. and the cachet. Oh.
0: Mm-hmm. And oh. I think that's a, it's a common criticism of food critics in particular, mm-hmm. is that they don't come from the restaurant side of things. That they are... You know, I think there's kind of the attitude within restaurants, at least, of looking at certain food critics and saying, well, that's easy for them to say. What do they know about running a restaurant or working the line or,
1: you know? Yeah. Um, And I feel like I've read – I feel like I have read food writers that I love who have never worked in a restaurant. And so I like – you know, there's all kinds of writers, right? So I think Jonathan Gold – Um, I think his writing about food is great I don't think he's ever worked at in a restaurant so he so he tells great stories about food I guess I would say that you don't necessarily have to work in a restaurant though I do think it really helps just to give you perspective and context Um, but if you don't then you really need to learn about the industry and that goes back to you know like back to Things like, why am I eating this? Why is this on the plate? How did this get here? Mm -hmm. Just thinking of all those steps.
0: Mm -hmm. It sounds like asking really good questions and not just taking the food at face value is a really important skill.
1: Yeah, I think so. Because anyone can tell you their opinion about the food on their plate. But people really want to know the story now behind it. And that's where you can really be different if you want to make it your profession
0: well, as you look back in some of the things that you have written what is what's one of those stories that you sort of delved into was there any stories that were particularly surprising or captivating
1: i liked going back to those ultimate guides we also did one on ahi and i love that because I got to talk to the longliners who catch most of the tuna that served in Oahu. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just a very different life. Um, Yeah. Just a life that I normally would not know anything about if it weren't for my job. So being able to just ask them about what it was like to be at sea for three weeks at a time. And for some days to just be fishing for, um, Twelve hours straight just hauling in lines like the entire time um and then part of that story too was a guy who was trying to raise tuna in a tank he was trying to farm tuna it was crazy to think about once I realized how difficult it was I mm-hmm. guess <laughs> because he's, it's kind of like trying to tame a tiger mm-hmm. um and it's taken us know centuries to kind of domesticate all the food that we eat now and so to kind of witness the beginning of someone trying to domesticate a wild food was fascinating so
0: you have now left your post at Honolulu (laughs) magazine tell me what led you to make that decision
1: um I know it's crazy right less that's the best job in the world (laughs) and how long were you there I was there for about four years most four years. Um, I think the food reviews really got to me. Um, it was just yeah, like I had mentioned before. It's just I didn't like them, and and it's actually not what I intended when I became a food writer. I never planned on writing reviews, and when I started at the job, that wasn't part of my job description. Mm-hmm. It was um, when the food reviewer died, then I took over that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I took that over. So, so I still want to write about food. I just, not that aspect. And so tell me about this new chapter. (laughs) Still writing it as I go. And as we know, I'm a slow writer. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I still want to write about food. I still have a lot of questions that I want answered about food and um, There's a couple topics, too, that are kind of weighing on my mind that I want to explore. One of them, a lot of them actually these days are about business, about the business of running restaurants, you know. And I think there's, people are talking a lot about tipping in the last couple years. It's really starting to maybe reach a tipping point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Looking at it also as a way to, like, how do we keep cooks in the kitchen? Because we're not paying them that much. And...
0: And yet there's like more cooks than ever.
1: It's an industry where
0: you have to be in it for the love.
1: It is, but I feel like it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. I feel like they should be. I feel like cooks should be compensated better than they are. Especially in a place like Hawaii
0: where the cost of living is so high.
1: Yeah. And I don't know if there's actually a connection between if you pay your cooks more, will you get better food? But I feel like there should be. You know, everyone wants better food, right? And I feel like one of the solutions is to pay them better. Almost every restaurant I know in Honolulu is understaffed. Mm. So, um, and yet I don't believe like the fast food restaurants are understaffed because they actually pay better than a lot of the restaurants. Mm. So, <laughs> That's um, interesting. and uh, you wrote
0: about this in the magazine, right? About a yeah. year or
1: so ago. Yeah, that was another one that wasn't quite the aftermath was not fun at all. <laughs> was <laughs> like definitely afraid to go out to eat after that, but it it really struck me too again how emotional it is. The, the it just makes no sense to tip right now eat anymore. Like why can't we roll it into into the prices or?
0: But why do you think uh, people are emotional about that topic in particular?
1: The most emotional people were the servers, which is mm. <laughs> obvious because they are like if you get rid of tipping they will probably get a pay cut. And right now, servers make a lot more than the back of the house. And so to me, it seems like kind of maybe equalizing it a bit. But, and I see their point of view, it's it's about taking money away from them. So I can see that. But then there are also a lot of diners that really like the power of tipping, even though, even though there's plenty of studies to show that like tipping doesn't do anything to improve your service, and we're all totally biased when it comes to tipping servers, you know, like, you know, if a girl, if a girl writes like or has writes thank you or puts a smiley face mm-hmm. on the on the receipt, then they automatically get more tips. And there's
0: a lot of psychology going on there. <laughs> yeah,
1: there is. <laughs> it's totally not objective I would say Mm -hmm. but people and people like that power that they do think they're like I have this power over you and I think it's just because it's the norm you know people don't want to change
0: yeah it's changing the rules in a big way yeah but you are ahead of the curve since Danny Meyer just this week announced that um, his restaurant group was moving away from tipping in New York which is huge it's so huge and it's that's
1: why I love Danny Meyer. <laughs> he's so great. And I think for him, too, it's uh, he recognizes it not just as, like, maybe paying the back of the house more money, but also as, this is a better way to run a business, and this is a better way, ultimately, to have better service. Mm-hmm. he's always been super hospitality-oriented.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah. I started seeing a lot in San Francisco, too. Not a lot, it's just, like, a couple restaurants here and there. And I think the reason why and i think san francisco will start will see, start seeing it a lot in san francisco because the minimum wage is getting to be so high mm-hmm. and the minimum wage increasing kind of again helps the servers more than the back of the house because of the tipping system so mm-hmm.
0: what were you expecting your freelance life to be like and how has the reality matched up to that so far
1: it's been <laughs> what 6 months or so Uh, yeah, I guess something like that. Well, I did, I mean, I freelanced before I was at the magazine, so I know that it's kind of twice the work for half the pay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so there hasn't really been anything unexpected, I guess. Um, just trying to grapple with how long can I do this for and is there a way to make it work? Um, well, and I don't have any answers yet.
0: (laughs) I admire your, um, I mean, that's a risky move.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I figure, you know, worst case, if I run out of money, I can, I can always go back to cooking. Mm-hmm. I can, there are other ways I can still make a living. So I I'd try it. Um, I didn't want to regret not ever trying it. Who or what inspires you? I don't know. A lot of people do, I guess. Um, a lot of the people that I meet when I'm writing stories really do. Um, Just anyone who's able to take that risk and put themselves out there. Yeah, running a restaurant, cooking, farming.
0: Um, As a freelancer, how does your day-to-day differ from
1: the the food editor gig, if at all? I surf more at random times during the day. (laughs) Um, But other than that, it's Not a whole lot different just because I did have a, I was lucky to have a pretty flexible schedule at the magazine. I mean, I was definitely in the office more than I am now. Now I'm just working from home wherever home is at the time. (laughs) Is there, and I'm sort of projecting with
0: this question, but is there a different kind of psychological toll in each of those two setups?
1: Yeah, I guess with freelance, you never quite know if you're going to get a story every month. Yeah, there's less, definitely less security in it or without the steady paycheck. Oh, the I guess the other thing that's different is even though there wasn't that much of a structure, there was a structure in the deadlines, right? You had, you know, when you have daily deadlines for the blog and the monthly deadlines, it was kind of nice to operate within the structure. There's a freedom in structure, right? And so now that it's totally, um, I don't have a regular column anymore, Um and stories come, when I pitch them, it's all kind of, it's not as consistent. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Um, but the benefits are that I can choose to write what I want. So I don't have to write food reviews. and um, Or if I do, it's because I want to, because I love a restaurant so much I want to, I want to write about it. Or, so it's really nice having the freedom to choose exactly what I want to write. And then also... Um, Because of that, I'm also branching out into other kinds of writing. So not just about food. I mean, the thing that I loved about food a lot, too, was the people. So I'm just writing more stories about people doing other things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Who are the people who have shaped you the most in your career? My (laughs) ex-husband. Definitely. You know, when I met him, I was totally struck that he thinks differently from most people, which can be really really intellectually stimulating but also some days is really really frustrating <laughs> when you it feels like you have an argument about everything because he just doesn't believe what most people believe <laughs> he just ch- wants to challenge the status quo for everything <laughs> like i remember once we had this huge argument early in our early days of dating where i was like i like ribs you know fairly innocuous statement and it turned into this huge argument and he's like well you only like ribs a certain way which makes me believe that you don't actually like ribs you just like <laughs> and I was like oh my god <laughs> I just wanted to tell you that I like ribs <laughs> but I think that really helped me um in my writing process and to really kind of challenge things that people were telling me or or dig deeper into why is this the case and and it was always interesting kind of like extrapolating, well, how does this story relate to other parts of life and kind of like looking at the bigger picture and the context. Hmm. So yeah, he read pretty much every story that I ever wrote and I would use him as an editor a lot of the times too, which is also, you know, another like double-edged sword. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> um, sometimes lots of really good ideas and would help with the flow but sometimes just like you know it's personal and he's attacking it and (laughs) then it feels like he's attacking me and (laughs) and then it falls into attacking the relationship and (laughs) so (laughs) I'm pretty sure I've talked to a lot of other writers that are like wow having your uh, significant other edit you is the worst idea ever
0: (laughs) it's a slippery slope
1: Yeah. yeah
0: Uh, How do you manage to make a living off of freelance writing?
1: (laughs) Still trying to figure that out. (laughs) I mean, when I was freelance, when I was freelance writing before I got the job, I was also running um, some other businesses on the side. And then also I was married. So I guess dual income, they kind of helped even, even out any any slow periods although back then there were there really weren't that many slow periods so now because now i'm just focusing on the writing for now i haven't figured that out yet i do think that i'm going to have to supplement it with non-editorial writing or maybe go back also into a business again too i don't know i haven't figured it out yet (laughs) Everyone I've talked to, though, uh, supplements their income with some other more stable sort of income, whether it's like teaching or PR things or marketing.
0: I think that's a really good thing to point out because it's for, for many readers, they may see one person's name as a byline all over the place and sort of assume that that's all they do. And it's often not true at all. You know, there's something that is sort of the foundation or a a complimentary gig
1: yeah, rounds it out, you know? Definitely. Yeah, no one I know makes their income solely off of editorial freelance writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are
0: your essential tools for work? (laughs)
1: Um, Laptop and a notebook and pen. And then uh, friends of mine introduced me to this pen called... Oh, crap. What is it even called? I don't know what it's called. But it's magic. It is totally magic. So it's a pen that records. But when you take notes, when you go those notes, it will find that point in the recording for you. So it has shaved off hours of my transcribing it.
0: I've heard of this recordings. pen. My friend who uh, is a marketing researcher and does focus groups, she uh-huh. uses it for that very purpose.
1: Oh, my God. It's amazing. It
0: yeah. We'll have to figure out what the name of that is, and I'll put it in the show notes. So you actually – so you, you, as you're interviewing somebody, you're taking notes with a pen and recording it.
1: Yeah, most of the time. If it was going to be something short for the blog, then I would just take notes. Um, recording is mainly for – longer pieces or potentially controversial pieces Mm. (laughs) just so I have it accurate Um, yeah on the iPhone too (laughs) Mm. (laughs) to take pictures of food and to remember things (laughs) and to sometimes take notes if I don't have pen or paper or it's too obvious to like take out my pen and paper (laughs) if you could summarize your
0: career in six words that's hard (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Curious Hungry Lucky (laughs) Connecting Cooking (laughs) And Love (laughs) That's a hard one Yeah it is (laughs) Is there anything That you think I should have asked you? Uh, Not really But I was just Randomly thinking I was like I wish I had the guts To write more About food Policy And things like that I feel like What I'm good at is kind of like the micro level, the individuals and the businesses, and I'm very curious about the the, like the larger picture. But I'm not very good at researching and writing about it. I wish you would do that, (laughs) (laughs) right? Because that's what I think too. Is um, there's always there's so everyone's a food writer now, but very few people are really tackling those larger issues. And I guess I always want to go into places that where no one else is.
0: Well, Martha, thank you so much. This has been a really awesome conversation. Yeah. Thanks, Danny. It was fun. That's it for today. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or at tastygrinds.com, where you can also find show notes, subscribe to our email list, or let us know who you'd like to hear interviewed. Until next time, thanks for listening.